Hello. Hi. I'm Sarah. I'm Casey. And we are Relatively Relatively Dark. Dark. Easter. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. That's good. So we are back from our little hiatus. Mm-hmm. We had a lot going on and the next case that I wanted to do really needed a deep dive so I needed time and I worked on it up until you got here to record. So <laughs> I needed all that time. Yeah. We said we were deep diving and I dove. <laughs> Scuba. So a couple of things I wanted to mention before we get started. First, all of the flooding and stuff that has happened in Kentucky yeah. a few weeks ago. Um, I think it was around like Hazard, Pikeville, that area. Eastern Kentucky. Yes. I want to, I'm going to post a link in the show notes for you can go to donate to the flood relief and all that stuff. Our hearts go out. Our prayers go out. Yes. All of those affected. Very tragic. It is. On a little bit of a lighter note, we can do a couple shout outs today. Yeah. Our very first relative is Kyle, mm-hmm. which is our real, true, in real life relative. Yes. So thank you. Yes. I call him Scuzz. Oh, it's been like that for years. Yeah. Super Cuz. <laughs> Scuzz. Can't and believe that stuck. <laughs> it did. And our second one, shout out to our sister. Yes. Miss Tina. Thank y'all. We love you. Yes. And we appreciate you so much. Yes. Last thing I wanted to mention. I don't know if you noticed, whenever you pulled up, um, we pulled up a flower bed from our front yard. And, I didn't, by the way. <laughs> well, Joseph showed me yesterday, you know, what it looked like now that he got it pulled up and the grass has to grow back in that spot and stuff. My first thought was, oh my gosh, it looks like we buried somebody in our front yard. Because <laughs> it is the perfect size Oh gosh. For a grave. So, if anybody knows me and knows where I live and you drive by my house, we did not get rid of any evidence in our front yard. <laughs> we just pulled up a flower bed. That's funny. I'm going to definitely have to look now. Yes, you will have to look. <laughs> so, today, I'm doing a suggestion from okay. our mother. Oh, yes. She wanted me to cover the Borden family murders. Yeah. And that is what I'm doing today. Yay. I thought about covering it, but Sarah already knew about it, mm-hmm. and we like to, for the most part, cover things that the other one doesn't know about. Yes. Which makes me limited, because she's <laughs> been a true crime buff for years. You know, so she decided to cover this one, which I'm glad, because I don't know anything about it. <laughs> but I so. knew the gist of it, some of the details and stuff, but I mean, I read a book, and I was like, oh, I didn't know some of this stuff. And then I watched a documentary, and I was like, oh, I didn't know this. And then I watched another documentary, and I just had, like, three little packets of notes from each thing. And I got a little smaller every time, but I was like, okay, I have to quit. Because every time I watch something or read something, there's something in there that I don't know. (laughs) People aren't going to want to listen to, like, an episode that's four hours long. So, I didn't know whether to bury the lead on this or not, or to just come out and say kind of, like, the gist of the case. Mm Mm-hmm. And then go over it. But that's what I decided to do. Okay. Because I feel like that will make it easier for me. Okay. You're the one doing it, so. First, I'm going to tell you a little rhyme. Okay. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. Oh, my gosh. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Oh, my gosh. However, 
the book that I read about this said, quote, Like so many others, this ditty and similar ones sacrificed accuracy in the name of rhyme and rhythm. Oh, so that's not exactly what happened. No, it's not. Okay. But I will tell you what happened. It was 30 and 29, wasn't it? No. Okay. We <laughs> are taking a trip to Fall River, Massachusetts. Okay. In the time that we're going to be talking about, it was an industrial town, and it was, is, about 49 miles south of Boston. Okay, I wonder if Luke's been through there. Probably, he's been everywhere. <laughs> At the time, it was the second largest textile manufacturer in the world. Wow. Manchester, Manchester was the largest, if you're interested. Okay. Andrew Jackson Borden married Sarah Anthony Morse on Christmas Day in 1845. Okay. And that's Morse, not Morris. Oh, okay. There were seven, I think, founding families of Fall River, and among those families were the Bordens. Okay. On March 1st in 1851, they, not they, Sarah, okay. gave birth <laughs> to their first child, Emma Lenora Borden. May 3rd in 1856, another daughter, Alice Esther Borden, was born. Unfortunately, she passed away on March 10th in 1858. Man. So she was little. According to findagrave.com, she suffered from dropsy on brain. It also okay. said hydrocephalus. Oh, okay. So Lizzie Andrew Borden was born on July 19th in 1860. It's speculated that they named her after Andrew because they didn't really have any more hope for her son. Yeah. In March of 1863, when Emma was 12 and Lizzie was 2, Sarah passed away from uterine congestion and disease of the spine. So Lizzie didn't even kill her mother, right? No. Okay, yeah. Liars. <laughs> I looked up what uterine congestion was because I'm like, what is that? It's basically when your pelvic veins don't drain blood properly and so it causes increased pressure. Oh, okay. So, Yeah. In June of 1865, Andrew married Abby Durfee, Mm. who was also a descendant of one of the founding families of Fall River. And Lizzie called her mother, and she couldn't really remember Sarah because she was so young. Okay. Emma was 14 at the time, and she apparently had trouble adjusting, and she was sent to boarding school, which was hard on Lizzie because she looked up to her. Yeah. According to the book, she was an idolized companion, mm-hmm. which we know how that is. Your sisters oh, yeah. are... Yeah. Our sisters aren't our best friends. Exactly. <laughs> the Bordens were a Christian family, and Lizzie, when she was almost a teenager, she started attending Sunday school, and she didn't think that people liked her. She thought that she kind of just gave off a bad first impression, mm-hmm. and her thinking that made her act a certain way and kind of made that true. Yeah. Like the other girls in, at church kind of avoided her. Yeah. Lizzie's principal, <laughs> Horace Benson, said about Lizzie, quote, As a pupil, she was an average scholar, neither being exceptionally smart nor noticeably dull. She was subject to varying moods and was never fond of her stepmother. She had no hesitation in talking about her, and hmm. in many ways showed her dislike of her father's second wife. Well. He also described Abby as... A kindly, lovable woman who tried, but ineffectually, to win the love of her stepdaughters. Mm-mm-mm. So, when they got older, neither Lizzie or Emma ever married. 
Okay. So they were spinsters. Emma was more of the quiet, keep to yourself type. Mm -hmm. But Lizzie was very social. Okay. She was a social butterfly. She liked parties. She was the secretary of the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission. Oh, okay. And she was active in her church and taught Sunday school. Wow. Um, the Bordens were an upper middle class family. Okay. So Andrew had some money. Yeah. But they lived well below their means. Most of the fancy families, those with a lineage to the founding families, mm -hmm. including some of Andrew's, I think his cousins, some of his extended family, lived on what was known as the Hill. Okay. Which was the fancy houses, the people with servants, the nice parties, the yeah. bougie people. Yeah. But Andrew was frugal. So, even though he was a Borden, he always had to work for his money, and he worked his way up from an undertaker to a bank president. Okay. There's a rumor, a podcast that I listened to, they had some of the facts wrong, okay. so I don't know how true this is or where they got it, but they said it was rumored that he would cut off the feet of the corpses when he was an undertaker, so they would fit into smaller coffins to save money. Wow. I don't know if that's true, but if it is... Did you hear that on any of your other information? No. Not in the book, not in either of the two documentaries that I watched. So, And you already said that you know for a fact that they got some of their info wrong? Yes. I would say it's probably not true, but yeah. it's Creepy if so. Yeah. I just thought I'd throw it in there. Yep. So because Andrew was frugal, they lived at 92 2nd Street in Fall River. This was close to the mills, and this is where most of the workers lived. Okay. Not the rich people. If you had money, yeah. you didn't live in that area. Yeah. The house they lived in was 20 feet wide. It had no hallways, so all the rooms were connected to each other. You had to walk through this room to get to this room, so there was no privacy. That is so weird. And they had no electricity, which if you had money, you had electricity. Yeah. And you would also have indoor plumbing, which they did not have. Why would he do that? Why would he choose to do that? He's cheap. <laughs> he was really cheap. <laughs> wow. I mean, I'm all for saving money. I'm all for like, yeah. hey, off-brand stuff first. If it's good, we'll stick with that. But that's a little much. Yeah. It's so a bit too far. <laughs> the girls didn't like this, especially yeah. Lizzie, because she wanted to be living up on the hill. Mm -hmm. She wanted to be a part of the bouginess. She wanted to be a member of high society. Yeah, socialite. Yes. Well, when Lizzie was 27, so this was around 1887 or 88. Mm-hmm. Andrew bought a house because he was somewhat into real estate, mm -hmm. juggled many different trades. Okay. Um, and he gave that house to Abby, who let her sister have it. One source said it was to keep her sister from getting evicted from where she currently lived. Okay. But I'm not 100% sure. Okay. Well, of course, the girls were bitter about it because they feel like they deserve more. Yeah. Like, we can't even have... About the internet. We can't even have electricity. We can't have running water. And you're going to buy a house to give to our stepmother's sister. So Andrew gave Lizzie and Emma a house that belonged to their grandfather. Okay. Some sources say that he sold it to them for $1 and he let them keep the rental earnings from it. Like they would rent it out. Mm -hmm. But the girls had to take all of the money that they were earning renting it out to fix it. All these no, issues okay, that it had. Yeah. So then they were like, we don't want it. Yeah. So some sources say they bought it for a dollar and they sold it back to him for 5000 Oh, wow. <laughs> so today that would be selling it for $30 and buying it back for 156000 
Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. So, because of this whole ordeal, the girl stopped calling Abby mother, or at least Lizzie did. Okay. And she started referring to her as Mrs. Borden. Okay. In 1889, they hired an Irish immigrant named Bridget Sullivan to be kind of like a housemaid, even though there were three women already living there. Mm -hmm. And they all three still did some housework and stuff. They didn't work. They were there all the time. Yeah. Your house is 20 feet wide. Yeah. Why do you need four people to keep it clean? Yeah, that's weird. I don't know. But anyways, apparently Lizzie and Emma called her Maggie, at least on some occasions. Her name was what? Bridget. Okay. Weird. I don't know if it's because they didn't like the name Bridget, so they're like, your name's Maggie now. Mm -hmm. The same podcast said that they used to have a maid named Maggie, and they just called her Maggie. I don't know for sure. Weird. In June of 1890, Andrew sent the girls on a 19-week tour of Europe. Wow. So he kind of gave in, you know, treated them, gave them a little gift, go yeah. see Europe for 19 weeks. <laughs> That'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I want to go home. So now we're going to talk about 1892. Okie dokie. Lizzie is now 32 and Emma is 42. Okay. There were rumors going around that Lizzie would shoplift mm -hmm. from the local store. <laughs> from the local stores? Local stores and shop owners would tell Andrew what she took and then he would just pay them for whatever she took. Wow. On June 24th, Andrew and Abby were out of town, apparently tending to some farm that they had in another town. I don't know. Okay. And it was a big day because that day, Lizzie was supposed to become a board member, was becoming a board member of the local Good Samaritan Hospital. Okay. So she's kind of a big deal. Yeah. But that day, the house was broken into and robbed. Okay. All three women were there. Lizzie, Emma, and Bridget. They okay. were all there whenever it was robbed. And all that was taken was $50 and some of Abby's jewelry from her desk. Okay. Because of her shoplifting, they suspected that Lizzie was the perpetrator. So, tension in the house just got worse. Mm -hmm. And Lizzie told a friend that Abby was, quote, a mean old thing. Okay. It's weird because she's got all of this going on. She's shoplifting. Her own family thinks that she robbed them when she yeah. only took Mrs. Borden's things. Yeah. But she also was made treasurer of the Young Woman's Christian Temperance Union. Okay. So she's got, like, who she is at home and who she is in public. Yeah, like, of. she's keeping up her image outside. Yeah. Or they know and they just don't care because that happens a lot, too. Like, she's a name, yeah. an important name, and they're going to treat there's her a, like There's one. a level of respect there. Yeah, like, even if they know what she's doing or not, they're not they're going to look the other way. Yeah, that's of who true. she is. Could be. Yeah. I just know it happens. It does. So, that was in June. Okay. In April, April, their barn was broken into, and it's rumored, don't know for sure, that Andrew blamed the pigeons that were there, thinking that that was like... <laughs> I'm sorry. Not, not that they broke into the barn, but <laughs> blaming... <Darn> pigeons. <laughs> blaming the fact that it was broken into... On the pigeons because the boys knew the pigeons were in there and boys would come and break in to hunt the pigeons. Okay. Is where that came from. <laughs> well, it's rumored that he killed all of them with a hatchet. Wow. And Lizzie kind of thought of them as pets. She had mm -hmm. recently made them like a pigeon coop. Mm -hmm. If this did happen, that just made tensions even higher. Yeah. Lizzie would later testify. Um, roughly a few months later, a man came to the house and argued with Andrew over one of his properties. Okay. So just throwing that in there. Okay. 
Bridget served mutton for dinner one night, and a few days later, Andrew and Abby were sick. On August 3rd, so now we're in August, 1892. Okay. August 3rd, Abby went to the doctor, and she was worried that they had been poisoned, which is why they were sick. Right. But the doctor told her it was most likely just from eating spoiled food. Okay. One, they didn't have electricity. They didn't have any way to keep their food sanitary, so it would just be left out. Yeah. And you know, back then, if she made mutton, he was having mutton for supper, he was having mutton for breakfast, mutton for lunch, I keep wanting to say muffin, mutton for supper the next night, you know what yeah. I mean? It was just, yeah. Yeah, that's gross. So, Lizzie told Bridget that she was sick too, but people said that they saw her out and about shopping in town that day. Okay. A pharmacist later told police Lizzie came into his drugstore wanting prussic acid, which mm. is cyanide. She said that she wanted to clean a sealskin cape to, like, kill moths, to keep them off of her cape, but he wouldn't sell it to her. And two other witnesses in the drugstore at the time attested to the same thing. Yeah. John Morse, which is Lizzie and Emma's maternal uncle. Okay. So, Andrew's first wife, Sarah, her brother. Okay. He came to Fall River at this time to buy some oxen. Okay. And while he was there, he needed to discuss some business with Andrew, and he wanted to visit other relatives. And he stayed with the Bordens on August 3rd. Okay. That same night, Lizzie told a friend of hers named Alice Russell about the family being sick. Mm-hmm. She referred to them as Mr. and Mrs. Borden. Mm-hmm. They've been sick. And she was saying, you know, well, maybe it's the milk that we're having delivered. Mm-hmm. Back then they had milk delivered. It's crazy. Yeah. But Alice told her, your milk's delivered at 4 o'clock. It's light outside. Nobody's going to risk being seen going up you know, to your doorstep and poisoning your milk with something. But Lizzie also voiced concerns about someone having it out for them because Andrew had so many enemies. He wasn't very liked. Okay. And she said, quote, Lizzie, she said, I feel as if I wanted to sleep with my eyes half open, with one eye open half of the time, for fear they will burn the house down over us. I think sometimes, I'm afraid sometimes, that somebody will do something to him. He is so discourteous to people. End quote. Okay. So this is what Lizzie tells Alice. The next day, August 4th, is when it all goes down. Oh, what goes down? Around 7 a.m., Andrew, Abby, and John Morse, they have breakfast. Emma wasn't at home. She was out of town visiting friends. For breakfast, they had mutton. Mm-hmm. Johnny cakes, which is kind of like cornbread pancakes. Okay. Mutton broth. And coffee and cookies. Okay. Bridget ate breakfast after them. I guess, you know, it's kind of normal for the housemaid. You don't eat with yeah the main family. You eat after. Well, after she ate breakfast, she started feeling sick. Like okay. Andrew and Abby had been. So after breakfast, John Morse and Andrew, they both left around 9 o'clock. Okay. Morse went to go see relatives and Andrew had business at the bank to take care of. Okay. By 9.30, Abby was upstairs tidying up the guest room where John Morse had stayed, and she sent Bridget to go outside to wash the windows. Well, she's sick, so it's kind of like a yeah rude move, but whatever. And she actually puked then while she was outside, like washing the windows, and she had puked earlier. Wow. So, uh, sometime before 11 o'clock, some sources say 10.30-ish, some sources say 10.40-ish, so around that time. Andrew comes home, I think, basically for like a lunch. He would most of most days anyways. He just came back a little earlier because he was still feeling sick. Mm-hmm. 
But when he gets there, the doors are locked. Okay. And they're normally not locked because they know that he's going to come back home. So Bridget goes to try and unlock the door and she's struggling to get the locks open because there's like three different locks on the door. When she's struggling with that, she hears Lizzie laugh from the top of the stairs. Wow. She said later on that she wasn't sure where she was, but she knew that it was coming from the top of the stairs. And like I said before, this is a small house. Yeah. I feel like you're going to know where somebody's at. Yeah. It's not like this huge house, like it was coming from the West Wing and it could have (laughs) been in bedroom four or bedroom 12. You know what I mean? Um, Eventually, she gets the door open and she goes back to washing the windows. Lizzie comes downstairs and she told Andrew that Abby had left because she got a note that a friend of hers was sick, so she went to go check on her friend. Okay. At this point, Andrew lays on the couch in the sitting room to take a nap because he doesn't feel good, and Lizzie and Bridget go into the dining room. Okay. Bridget goes in there to start on those windows, and Lizzie starts ironing some handkerchiefs. Okay. I think it was handkerchiefs. And she asks Bridget if she's going to go out that afternoon. And she's like, I don't know. You know, I don't really feel good to be going out anywhere. And she's like, you know, well, if you do, lock the door. She says, you know, Mrs. Borden is out and I may go out too. Okay. Which doesn't make sense to me. Like, why can't you just lock the door when you leave? Yeah, that's weird. I don't know. Um, So Bridget finishes the windows and she goes into the kitchen to like rinse out her rags and stuff. Mm -hmm. Lizzie follows her in the kitchen and she's like, hey, they're having a sale at this department store. You know, you should go. Seems weird. Like, she's trying to get her out of the house. Right. But Bridget doesn't feel good. So, she goes upstairs Mm -hmm. to her room, which is on the third floor in the attic. And she lays down. And she said later on that it was around 11 o'clock because right after she laid down, she heard bells chime at the city hall. Okay. A few minutes after 11, Bridget hears Lizzie call for her. She says, Maggie, come down quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. Okay. Bridget comes down and she sends Bridget to get the doctor and her friend slash neighbor, Alice Russell. Dr. Bowen, which is kind of like their family doctor, he Mm -hmm. gets there. Andrew is dead on the sitting room sofa. There's nothing in the room that was disturbed and it looked like he was killed while he was asleep. Okay. Bridget mentioned, you know, we need to find where Abby is to let her know. Yeah. And Lizzie said, well, Abby must be dead too. Because I think I heard her come in. Like, she thinks she heard her come back to the house, so she's got to be dead, too, if she's here. (sighs) And she asked Bridget to go upstairs and see if she's there. And Bridget's like, I'm not going up there alone. Yeah. So, another neighbor that was there named Adelaide Churchill went with her upstairs. Okay. They found Abby's deceased body face down on the floor in the guest room. The door was open. Okay. Keep that in mind. Okay. A little more detail about the bodies. Um, Andrew was hit 10 to 11 times. Okay. Different sources, different things. Yep. Not 41 times. (laughs) His body was warm to the touch. His blood was bright red and still dripping. Mm Mm-hmm. So he hadn't been dead very long. The left side of his head was crushed in, basically Mm. unrecognizable. His nose was severed, and one of his eyes, I'm assuming his left eye, was cut in half. Oh my goodness. Yes. Very brutal. Yeah. Abby was hit 18 to 19 times. Okay. The back of her head was crushed in. Her body was cold and her bu- her blood had coagulated and was dark. Okay. So 
she'd been dead longer than him. Yes. Quite a bit longer. They determined that Abby had been killed first sometime around 9.30. And Andrew, he had to have been killed between 11 and 11.15. Yeah. Records show that 11.15 is when the police were called. Okay. So, she lays down at 11. So, even if she's, like, on her way up there a couple minutes till 11, Andrew's alive. Man. By 11.15, the police have already been called. That's crazy. And he's dead. Couple side notes. Mm Mm-hmm. The medical examiner, William Dolan, he gets there about 11.45. Dr. Bowen is there. Bridget's there. Miss Churchill is there. Alice Russell, John Morse, Lizzie, and several members of the police department are there. Okay. So there are traipsing all around this crime scene. Stuff could have gotten moved. Yeah. Stuff could have gotten put in a different spot than it was at the time of the murders, and it's just a huge mess. Yeah. 1800s. And they performed the autopsies, the first of two, there. Wow. In the dining room at the crime scene. That's where they did the autopsies. That's messed up. Well, the police decided that it wasn't robbery. Because there was $81.65 in Andrew's wallet, mm-hmm. which amounts to more than $2,600 today. Wow. So, he had a decent amount of money in his pocket. Yeah. And he was wearing a gold ring. They didn't take him. It wasn't robbery. Yeah. Deputy Marshal John Fleet was questioning Lizzie, and he said, you know, do you know who would have wanted to hurt them? Do you know what happened? Whatever. And she corrected him and said, she is not my mother. My mother died when I was a child. And I would think that in the heat of a moment like that, you wouldn't be thinking of correcting him. Oh, yeah. That's the first thing that comes to your mind when all this is going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 that, that's not my mom. Don't mm-hmm. be saying that. That just, to yeah. me, shows how she felt about her. Yeah. Um, the funeral for 69-year-old Andrew and 64-year-old Abby was held on Saturday, August 6th at the Oak Grove Cemetery in Fall River. Okay. The Boston Herald covered the funeral, and they said about Lizzie, quote, Her dark, lustrous eyes, ordinarily flashing, were dimmed, and her pale face was evidence of the physical suffering she was undergoing and had experienced, end quote. So according to this newspaper, she's going through it. Yeah. The police didn't do a thorough search of the house (laughs) until roughly two days after. Okay. Which is stupid. Yeah. They found a few hatches and axes in the basement. There's conflicting accounts on how many. Yeah. There wasn't any blood on any of them. There was one hatchet head that was broken off of the handle and it was covered in white ash. So they think that maybe that was staged to look like it had been there for a while. Okay. And it was broken from the handle because the handle had blood. And the handle was going to be wooden. Can't really wipe the blood off the wood. Yeah. But you can wipe it off the... Metal, iron, whatever the axe head, yeah. hatchet head is made out of. Okay. So now let's go through a few of the suspects. One, we have the uncle, John Morse. Okay. He had an airtight alibi. His cousins vouched for him that he was there visiting across town, and he remembered the numbers of the trolleys that he took there and back. Oh, wow. Okay. So, one down. Bridget. They quickly ruled her out because she had no motive. Why would she kill her employers and put herself out of work? And not take any money. Yeah. And stay there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Next was a random stranger or for robbery. They ruled that out like first thing. Yeah. Nothing was taken. Yep. Next, they had to entertain the idea of an enemy of Andrew's. Okay. Revenge or hatred, whatever. 
One question is, why would the intruder kill Abby first? Yep. And where was he in the time between the murders? An hour and a half-ish in between. Like, where was he at? Yep. And if he had known Andrew's schedule, then he would have expected to have had to wait even longer because Andrew got home early. Yeah. So it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But if Abby dies first, her money goes to Andrew. So then if Andrew dies... Everything he owns, which now includes Abby's money, goes to Lizzie and Emma. Gotcha. The next was the daughters. It mm-hmm. wasn't Emma. She was out of town. Yeah. So then Lizzie became the prime suspect. The yep. only suspect. There I was why. Yeah. There <laughs> was no blood visible when police arrived. I mean, there was plenty of blood, but not on her. Yeah. And not on her dress. And the murder weapon was never found for sure. They speculated it was that hatchet head, but they don't know. Yeah. And there was no physical evidence whatsoever that she did it. Lizzie's inquest began on August 9th, and she claimed that she was in the barn loft looking for lead. Okay. She has a lot of conflicting statements. Uh, She said she was in the loft looking for lead to make a sinker to go fishing. Okay. And she also said at a different time that she was looking for lead to fix a screen. Okay. At one point, she said she was in the kitchen or the dining room ironing. Mm-hmm. Another time, she said she was in there reading a magazine. Wow. Were you in the loft? Were you in the kitchen? Were you in the dining room? And what were you doing? Were you going <laughs> to go fishing? Were you reading a magazine? Were you ironing? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. She would know. Yeah. Oh, and she also said that Andrew, whenever he had laid down, he had laid on the thing, took his boots off, put his slippers on. No, he was wearing his boots when he died. Gotcha. Also, the police said that there was a layer of dust in the loft of the barn. Okay. That had no footprints. Yep. The officer could see his footprints. Yeah. But hers weren't in there. But there was dust on the bottom floor of the barn with footprints. And he also said the loft of the barn was excruciatingly hot up there. So nobody yeah. would have stayed up there for the amount of time she would have had to been in there to not see anybody go in the house and yeah. kill them. But a big question that came up was why didn't she call for Abby? Yeah. I don't know if it was like speculated or if she herself said... She thought she was out because she got that letter to go to his sick friend. But she said she heard her come back in. So if you heard yep, her come back in. She said she must in, be dead too because I heard her come back. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't she call for Abby? Yeah, that's weird. Unless she already knew she was dead. Yep. The letter that she said that Abby got was never found. Mm-hmm. No one ever saw Abby leave the house. Or come back to the house, and no one ever came forward as being the friend that was sick, as being the person that delivered the letter. Yeah. Nothing. That's not true. When There's she no was letter. arrested or, you know, picked up to go to the inquest, whatever, she apparently had no emotional response. One officer on the scene said, quote, I was surprised at the way Miss Lizzie carried herself, and I must say that I admire her nerve. She did not appear to be the least bit excited or worried. I have wondered why she did not faint upon her discovery of the dead body of her father. Most women would have done so, for a more horrible sight I never saw, and I have walked over a battlefield where thousands lay mangled and dead. End quote. Wow. So he's saying he served doing something. Yeah. And he's seen all kinds of mangled bodies. And this was worse. And this was worse. Yeah. But her meek, little, delicate persona that she displays doesn't faint. Yeah. Anyways. Mm -mm -mm -mm. 
and the police all said that she was surprisingly calm the morning of the murders, after finding his body and all that. The inquest ended on August 12th, and she was taken to a jail about eight miles away from Fall River. Okay. One, because they didn't really have the means to house female prisoners in Fall River, and two, because of the notoriety of all of it. Yeah. On August 22nd, they had a preliminary hearing, and the judge stated that she was probably guilty (laughs) and sent her case to the grand jury. Okay. So it's basically like inquest is like a preliminary hearing for the preliminary hearing, and then you have the preliminary hearing to go to the grand jury, and then you have the grand jury to go to trial. Right. That's a lot. But anyways. I never really quite understood all the orders of everything. That's sort of you how know, it like, goes What's in this the purpose case, of this one? What's the purpose of this date? What's the purpose of this date? Um, at first, they said that there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute. Okay. But then, Bridget testified that Lizzie was wearing a blue dress on the morning of the murders, and she had later changed. Where's the blue dress? Alice Russell, her friend, she stayed with her for a few days after the murders, and she said that on Sunday, August 7th, three days after the murders, she walked into the kitchen and she witnessed Lizzie holding a blue dress, telling Emma that she was going to burn it because it was covered in paint. Red paint? I don't know. (laughs) Was it paint or was it blood? Blood. Blood. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs) So, that made the grand jury change their mind, Mm -hmm. and on December 2nd, 1892, Lizzie was indicted. Okay. The trial began on June 5th in 1893. She was charged with three counts of murder. One for Andrew, one for Abby, and one for both of them. Oh. I guess, like, good measure? I don't know. I don't think they can do that now. Uh, That's weird. Okay. (laughs) And three judges oversaw the trial. The prosecution was led by D.A. Knowlton and Thomas Moody. Okay. And the defense was made up of Andrew Jennings and George Robinson, who was the former governor of Massachusetts. Okay. It's a good man to have on your team. Anyways, (laughs) my words were not coming out. The jury, of course, was 12 men. Of course. You couldn't vote. You're not going to be on a jury. Yeah. Thomas Moody's opening statement for the prosecution was two hours long. Whoa. Yeah. And after hearing his opening statement, Lizzie fainted and had to be revived with smelling salt. Okay. So that made her faint, but the sight of her father's dead body bludgeoned? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Something's not right. I don't know why you're confused. (laughs) Any normal person would be. So the most important witness was Bridget because she was the one that was there when the murders took place. Yes. She testified that there was no ill will between Lizzie and Abby. Mm-hmm. She told them about Lizzie calling her to come downstairs, and she told them about finding Abby's body. Keep in mind, she heard Lizzie laughing from the top of the stairs, mm-hmm. and the guest room door was open. Yes. So, if Lizzie was up there laughing when Andrew was trying to get in the door, she would have seen Abby's body laying there. The way it's laid out, and I'll post a picture of the layout and stuff. Okay. If that door's open, you're seeing her body. Yeah. And I had a thought. I was like, well, wouldn't Bridget have seen it when she went upstairs to go to her room to lay down? Yeah. But there's two sets of staircases. There's one in the front of the house and there's one in the back of the house. Okay. One staircase only leads to certain rooms and another Mm. only leads to certain rooms. Gotcha. So the staircase Lizzie was at was by the guest room. Yep. The one Bridget took, you wouldn't have seen the guest room. Gotcha. 
So I answered my own question because mm-hmm. I was like, wait a second. I need to figure that out. Yeah, and I did, and that's not true. <laughs> so Dr. Bowen testified that he had prescribed Lizzie morphine okay. to calm her nerves and stuff after the murders. Not that she needed it, apparently, because she was yeah. chilled as a cucumber. But he testified that that... The what? <laughs> that diet <laughs> may account for her conflict. Sorry. Sorry. He testified that that may account for her conflicting statements when the police questioned her. Okay. Could that have affected her mood? I don't know. But, I mean, he hadn't... I wouldn't think that he had already given her morphine by the time they got there. Yeah. But still, that doesn't have anything to do with the fact that she was wearing a different dress, that she was laughing, she was the only one there. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you're right. Adelaide Churchill testified that... If the dress that was burned was like the one she was wearing the morning of the murders, she never saw any blood on it, never saw any on Lizzie, and even her hair was all nice and tidy. Okay. And Alice Russell said that she didn't see any blood on the dress whenever she saw her in, saw her in the kitchen, mm-hmm. and she never she didn't physically see her burn the dress. Okay. She just heard her say that she was going to because of paint. Yes. And evidently, Emma... Lizzie's seamstress and their house painter backed up her story that the dress was covered in paint. Okay. I don't know. The prosecution didn't really have much of a case. Yeah. Because it was all circumstantial. It could be explained different ways. Yeah. But they really tried, though. They exhumed the bodies and removed their heads. What? Boiled them down to where they would just have the skull. And kind of roughly fit the hatchet into the wounds in the skulls. Wow. Lizzie, again, fainted when they started doing that with the hatchet in the skulls. Okay. So she fainted twice. Open testimony, or open statements, hatchet in the skulls, fainted, fainted. Seeing it after it happened, she didn't faint. Which, devil's advocate, shock, but seems weird. Anyways. Yeah, it is weird. Um... A couple major things that worked against the prosecution were they ruled her previous statements to police, the contradictory ones and stuff, Mm -hmm. inadmissible because she didn't have a lawyer present. Oh, wow. They also ruled the pharmacist's testimony about the cyanide inadmissible. They said it was irrelevant in nature because they weren't poisoned. And they said it was irrelevant in time because it didn't occur on the day of the murders. One, yeah, they weren't poisoned because you wouldn't give her the poison. <laughs> yeah. Who's poison? The poison chosen to kill the Borden's poison. The poison chosen to kill the Borden's. Anyways, Ugh. sorry. And it wasn't irrelevant in time. She tried to, allegedly, tried to purchase it the day before the murders. Yeah, that's stupid. I agree. Anyways, one of the defense's witnesses was Dr. Benjamin Handy. Haney or Handy? Handy. Okay. Not Dr. Bowen, the one that did the examination and stuff. He was just a close friend of the Bordens. And he said that he went by the Borden house on the morning of the murders Mm -hmm. around 9 o'clock and a little after 10.30. And he said that he saw a medium-sized young man with a pale complexion, eyes fixed on the sidewalk, walking slow and acting strange. He said he seemed agitated, confused, and he was staggering, but he didn't seem intoxicated. Okay. He said that he never saw him before and he never saw him again, but, and this is in the book that I read, 
right after that, it says that he said he thought he had seen him before on a different day and he wasn't staggering. He wasn't acting weird. Okay. Have you seen him before or have you not seen him before? Yeah. So I don't know exactly what all happened as far as his testimony. That's weird. But I wanted to throw it in there because it also said that two other witnesses testified that they saw a strange man near the Borden house on the morning of the murders. So these were, or that guy was a close friend of Borden's? Of the Bordens, of the family, yeah. Okay, so not just the father. No, I think he knew. Okay. Just, he knew the family. That's weird. There was also two workmen that testified that they had been in the barn loft in the days leading up to the murders, so there had to have been footprints there. Their argument was basically, we were up there, I guess, you know, working on stuff or getting stuff to work on stuff. Either our footprints were up there and the police officer was lying, saying that he didn't see any, Mm -hmm. or the dust had already covered ours, so they could have already covered hers. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So I guess that was like their argument behind their testimony. Like, all of it's weird. I know. It's like, there's this, oh, she did it. There's this, wait, what? It's like, have you ever talked to a narcissist before? (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Because you can say stuff and then it comes back with something completely different and unrelated and you're so confused and you don't even know where you are anymore. That test, those two testimonies right there Mm -hmm. are like, what? I feel like this case is gaslighting me. Yeah. Which is what a narcissist does. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like that's how I describe this case. Like it's just making me rethink everything. That you thought you knew about life. the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, The last day of the trial was on June 16th, and this is when Emma testified. She again, or she also, said that there was no ill will between Lizzie and Abby or Lizzie and their father. And she said that, I guess as like a testimony, or testimony, a testament to their relationship, she said that the ring that Andrew was wearing was one that Lizzie had gave him 10 or 15 years earlier. Mm -hmm. And he always wore it, and he was even buried with that ring on. Okay. So I guess she brought that up to be like, this is how much she loves her father. Yes, exactly. Huh. Words. And are hard. Yeah. <laughs> she testified that the dress was covered in paint and that she's the one that suggested that Lizzie burn it. Okay. Because it was covered in paint. Lizzie's defense attorney, Andrew Jennings, toward the end of, or at the end of the trial, he pointed out there's no physical evidence connecting Lizzie to the murders. There was no blood on her. There's no murder weapon implicating her as the murderer. Mm -hmm. This is all really strange. And he also said that only someone who was strong and insane could have done this. Okay. (laughs) Thanks. Uh. (laughs) Anyways. And Lizzie didn't testify. And she only made one statement near the end of the trial and said, I am innocent. I leave it to my counsel to speak for me. Okay. Attorney Andrew Jennings rested their case by saying, quote, You do not have to decide how this brutal deed was done or who did it. All you must decide is whether it can be proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Lizzie Borden is guilty. If you cannot do that, you cannot take her life. Quote. End quote. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So, back then, Massachusetts, the mandatory sentence for a guilty verdict would have been death by hanging for anybody. Yeah. Um, the prosecution, I thought it was funny. They presented their case over the course of 10 days. Okay. The defense, one day. Oh. <laughs> they were done in a day. They laid yeah. it all out in a day. The last thing the jurors, juror, whatever. <laughs> the last thing they heard 
was the charge to the jury, which is basically an explanation of their responsibilities according to the law. Right. And this was given by Judge Dewey. 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 (laughs) Interesting fact, he was appointed the position he was in at the time by former governor and member of Lizzie's defense team, George Robinson. Man. One of the judges overseeing her case has at least some semblance of a close relationship with one of her defense attorneys. Man. Dewey's charge to the jury essentially recounted the defense's case. He talked about Uh, Lizzie's good character, her church activities, and he even questioned the state's expert witnesses. What? So he The judge did? Yes. He basically, in their instruction or whatever, before they go out to deliberate and come back with a verdict, was like leading them to acquit. You go think about all this stuff before you decide. Mm Mm-hmm. All the good stuff about her. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. That's not the judge's job. <laughs> That's not your job. <laughs> oh my gosh. The jury was dismissed and they were out for an hour and a half. They were out of the courtroom, I should say, for an hour and a half, but they reached a verdict in 10 minutes. Okay. They didn't want it to look like they already had their mind made up. Okay, yeah. So they just kind of sat in there twiddling their thumbs until yeah, seemed like a reasonable enough time. The verdict. Not guilty. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Lizzie Borden was a free woman. Mm -mm. When the verdict was read, the courtroom cheered and Lizzie burst into tears. Mm -hmm. You get a reaction out of her in the courtroom, I'm telling you. My goodness. The book I read said that the prejudices of the time really worked in her favor because women weren't seen as being strong enough to do something like that. And they they wouldn't think a woman would use a physical attack. Yeah. They would use poison. Mm-hmm. Huh, funny you say that. Because <laughs> apparently she tried to buy some and you wouldn't let her. So, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, even though she was found not guilty and she was free, whenever she got out, she was basically shunned. Mm-hmm. Shunned. Shunned. Anyways. <laughs> uh, when she went to church, the family owned a pew. I guess they did that. I don't know if it was like because of where it was or because of the times. Yeah. I don't know, but families could, like, purchase pews. I think it was probably the times. That's what I'm thinking. But, so she went, sat on her usual pew, and all of the pews around her were completely empty. Ooh. Like, nobody wanted anything to do with her. I ain't said me. Which is weird, because whenever the newspaper started covering her case after the murders and stuff, it was really favorable toward her. Yeah. Like, they're basically saying, you know, she was railroaded, they didn't look at anybody else. Yeah. And it's weird because then they got out and they're like, well, even if you didn't do it, we don't want to be associated with you because you're associated with this. Yeah. A few months after the trial, Lizzie and Emma sold the house on 2nd Street and they moved to a new house on French Street on the hill. And Lizzie named this house Maplecroft. Okay. Which I really like that name. Yeah. I don't know why I have to name it, but I think it's funny. They did. They named houses back then. Yeah. She started going by Lizbeth. Okay. Instead of Lizzie. She sometimes referred to herself as Lizbeth of Maplecroft. Okay. I think part of it was because it was fancy. It was bougie. It was, mm-hmm. you know, high society. I'm Lizbeth of Maplecroft. Yeah. And also because she no longer wanted to be known as Lizzie Borden of Fall River associated with all of the, with all of these murders, with the murders. And I don't know. I feel like it was more of the first one just because. Right. I just get that vibe. Now, now they're out of the picture. I can finally have what I deserve. Mm-hmm. I am Elizabeth of Maplecroft. You want to know what she thought she deserved? 14 rooms. 
<laughs> she had a winter bedroom and bath and a summer bedroom and bath. No need to switch these curtains out for the seasons. I'll just have a new room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she had servants. She had like Tiffany chandeliers. She was super fancy. And the podcast that I listened to mentioned that she had a car like turnstile. Okay, wow. So, like, you could park your car, and then whenever you're ready to go, you would just turn, like, this whole big piece of concrete. Yeah. And you could pull straight out instead of having yep. to back out. And I'm like, back in those times? Yeah. I mean, Which, that's I mean, this crazy could have been now. years later, but that's still bougie. Well, she finally had all of her dad's money that she felt like should have been used for that, along with yeah, her she Yeah, fi- she was finally living the life that she wanted, had always wanted to live. Yep. Emma, on the other hand... She wanted a quiet life. She wanted to get away from, you know, the notoriety of the motors. Mm -hmm. The motors. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the first time that I actually didn't know what you were trying to say. I was like, motor, what? I thought you were trying to say Borden's. No. She wanted to get away (laughs) from the notoriety of the murders. (laughs) She wasn't interested in the fancy parties and being a member of high society like Lizzie was. Right. Lizzie really got into the theater And she really enjoyed that, and she ended up becoming friends with a lot of theater folk. Okay. One in particular was an actress named Nance O'Neill. There's a rumor that they were lovers, but there's never been any evidence of that, so. Okay. But she threw all kinds of parties, and a lot of them were in Nance O'Neill's honor. Okay. Back then, though, actresses were seen kind of in the same light as sex workers. Really? Yes. Like, it was okay to go to the theater, but you didn't socialize with them. Much less, like, have them over to your house to entertain Hmm. them. That's strange. Right? Well, Lizzie hosted one such party in 1904, and afterwards, Emma left and moved to New Hampshire. And she never spoke to Lizzie again. Okay. In 1913, Emma said, quote, The happenings at the French Street house that caused me to leave I must refuse to talk about. I did not go until conditions became absolutely unbearable. I do not expect to ever set foot on the place while she lives. End quote. Wow, that's sad. What happened in that house? Yeah, and it's like that's they're, they're sisters. Know. Like, I could never... I could never imagine. So, even though Lizzie was rolling in the dough, mm-hmm. or she wasn't really rolling any in, she was sitting on it and whatever, <laughs> um, at some point, a friend was at her house... Maple cropped, and she admired one of her paintings. Okay. And Lizzie gave it to her. She's like, here, you can have it. Well, a friend broke it and took it to get it fixed, and it turns out it was stolen. Oh. So, so Lizzie, she's still a she's thief. Still, she's klepto. She has yeah, a problem. Apparently. Girl. <laughs> get it together. So they issued a warrant for Lizzie, and she ended up just settling that debt. Okay. So I got the money. I'll pay it. Yeah. She was always the infamous Lizzie Borden. Papers always were covering stories about her and whatever. Mm-mm. One paper even published that she was getting married and named the designer of her dress. None of it was true. Okay. They just feed off of it. They're leeches. Yeah, and they want to write what people, what they think people would want to read, even if it's not mm-hmm. true. And cab drivers would even pick up tourists at the bus station and drive them to the Maplecroft house or the Second Street house or both, or I'm not exactly sure. But they'd drive them like, oh, there's where Lizzie Borden lives. Is that what they would say? Yeah. Verbatim. <laughs> How they would say it? Yep. <laughs> at some point, um, Lizzie started having issues with her gallbladder. 
and she had surgery, but she succumbed to complications from the surgery in 1927, and she died at 67 years old. Okay. Emma died just nine days later at the age of 77. Wow. So now, we'll talk about her will. Okay. She left $500 to care for her father's grave, which is more than $16,000 today. Oh, okay. She left various amounts of cash, along with some jewels, to her friends and her servants. Mm -hmm. She left $30,000 to the Animal Rescue League of Fall River, and she Hmm. said, I'm assuming in her quote, she didn't say it after, (laughs) I have been fond of animals and their need is great and there are so few who care for them. Today, this is just under $977,000. She left a lot of money to that. Yeah. But she left nothing to Emma, saying she has enough to make her comfortable. Wow. I'm sorry. It's just like, these animals need shelter and they need this. Emma, you good. You got enough. You be all right. That's crazy. Uh, The house on 2nd Street, where the murders occurred, is now a bed and breakfast slash museum. Mm Mm-hmm. Technically, this is still an unsolved case. Yeah. And the curator of the Fall River Historical Society, Michael Martins, said, quote, Of course, only she knew, and whether or not she did it, the secret went with her to her grave. So, there's no one left to defend Lizzie Borden. End quote. Mm-mm-mm. I can't say with, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt she did it, because I don't know. Yeah, I do understand why they found her not guilty. Yeah, I do. It's still surprising, yeah. And a lot of people know about this case. They know about the little rhyme and stuff. Yeah. But they don't know that she was acquitted. And they don't know that it really, they weren't really hit 81 times. It was more like 30-ish um, altogether. But I didn't know any of it. But now you do. Yeah. Now when somebody talks about it, you'll be like, did you know? So, yes. Mother, when you listen, I hope I did it justice. I hope you liked it. Um, if you have any case suggestions that you want us to cover, theories about this case, we would love to hear them. What else? Personal stories. Yes. Email those to us. Follow us on Instagram. Join our Facebook group. Become a relative. Yes, please. We forgot to mention that on one of our last... Yes, our last one. I realized that. I think maybe the one before that too. I don't know. But I was like, (laughs) it's not in there. So yes, um, become a relative. Join our Patreon. Subscribe. All of the links to our social media accounts and stuff will be in the show notes as well as where you can go to donate to the flood relief. Yes. As well as resources if you want to watch any of the documentaries or read the book about this. There's one book that I will put a link to that the book I read referenced a lot, but Mm. I could not find it, like how to buy it anywhere. So Mm. Mm. Odd. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. And we hope you keep listening. Yes, please come back. Bye. 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 Bye.